Well, I was, uh, this will date me a bit, I was coming uh, of age in the 1980s when uh, the Just Say No to Drugs campaign was everywhere. And uh, one of the advertisements, one of the most memorable advertisements during that campaign was uh, a man that was standing next to an oven. And he held up an egg and said, this is your brain. And he pointed at a skillet and said, uh, at a frying pan that was sort of sitting on a hot oven and says, this is drugs. And he broke the egg and threw it into the skillet and said, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Provocative commercial. I obviously still remember it many years later. And the reason why it was so powerful was because it illustrated what would happen to you if you did drugs, like your brain would fry, as it were. I can remember uh, things like uh, when I played college baseball, they would show us every single year people that chewed chewing tobacco, and it was awful. Uh, it was terrible, these pictures that we would have to look at. I think we need warnings like this, right? We, we, we may not like it, but we need warnings like this. Maybe you've seen the pictures on the sides of bus stops of cars wrapped around trees that had underneath it, right? Don't drink and drive or don't text and drive. We need these kind of warnings because they illustrate us, for us, what happens if we do certain things that are not helpful. And so... More than we would like to admit, we regularly need these warnings to not go somewhere. It's not enough to be told, don't do that. Uh, nor is it even enough to say, look at the beauty of this thing. We kind of need these warnings to show what happens to us if we don't discipline ourselves for the right, for the good, for the true. And friends, that's what the book of Kings is doing. It's warning us. The book of Kings is holding up the egg, as it were, and saying, this is you. And it points at the skillet on the oven and says, this is idolatry. And it cracks the egg and throws it in there and says, this is you on idolatry. That's what the book of Kings is doing in so many ways. But there's another element to this commercial that we need to be warned about. Uh, And that is this. How do we get into the frying pan? How do we get into idolatry, right? Nobody looks at drug addicts or the judgments of God upon idolaters. Nobody looks at that and says, well, I want to turn out just like that. So how do we get there? We need the illustrations that warn us, but we need to understand the process of how we get into the frying pan. How do we get addicted to death and darkness that we turn into something we never would have otherwise wanted to be? Well, friends, we will see that in God's inerrant word in 2 Kings 13 to 16. And by the way, I should mention to you, I combined last week, if you're following closely on the sermon card, I combined next week's passages with this week's passages. So now it'll be 13 to 16. We got four chapters today. Hope you drank an extra cup of coffee. Uh, and so what we're going to do next week is now we'll have next week will be chapter 17. So in other words, if you're following on the sermon card, I hope you are. We're one week ahead. Big idea this morning is a question. Question this morning that we often ask around the life of our church. And that is this. Big idea is this. Where are you going? Where are you going? Or who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? Two points this morning we'll consider first. In the first point, the judgments of God. Uh, we'll, can, we'll kind of trace the downward swirl into the toilet bowl or into that skillet. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time there because the text is spending most of its time. But we'll come back on the second point and see the compassion of God there. And so that's where we'll, how we'll spend our time. So first point, the judgment of God. Who are you becoming? Well, let's consider now the judgments of God. Again, what we want to do throughout this narrative as we walk through the passage today is trace the trend and how they got where they're going, right? That's what the, that's what the author's trying to do. There's going to be a ton of names from kings. Don't worry about it, all right? I'll give you, relieve your, don't worry about all these names. Some of them sound the same. It's very confusing. Trace the trend down. Trace how they got where they're going. That's what the author's trying to get us to do. So take a look at chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. We learn about the reign of the first son of Jehu who comes to power in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now remember, God's people split up into two tribes, the ten and the two. The northern tribes called Israel, capital Samaria. Jehu, you remember, was the guy that was reigning, brought that judgment, but went too far. God promised him four sons in succession. This is the first. This is the first. And we will see how this will come to fruition today. Jehoaz... 
He's like the first king of the northern tribes as he comes in. He's like Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He does evil and leads Israel into evil. Verse 3, therefore, the anger of the Lord is kindled. And once again, I've been pointing this out all through the book of Kings. And if you're new, by the way, what we've been doing is just walking right through the book of Kings, submitting to whatever it comes next. So the verse, verse 3, the anger of the Lord is kindled. And as we've been saying, we notice time and again when God's anger comes up, it is regularly said to be provoked or kindled as opposed to his mercy and his compassion, which is quick. You'll see that again today. But nevertheless, his anger because of Jehoaz is kindled. Therefore, in judgment, the Lord gives Israel over to the nearby armies of Syria. And you'll notice there in the text, it says continually. So time and again, God's giving his judgment over to these idolatrous peoples in Israel. And yet Jehoaz, amazingly, when this judgment comes, he seeks the favor of the Lord in verse 4. And amazingly, the Lord listens to his prayer. And we'll come back to that at the second point. But for now, amazingly, Lord, we we see in verse 5, the Lord raises up some unnamed Savior to come and deliver Israel. And they're delivered from the Syrians, at least for for now. But then look at verse 6. Even so, right after the Lord delivers them, nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah, that's a false god, also remained in Samaria. So in short, how does Israel get into the frying pan? Well, the answer is unrelenting, overt, clear, and unequivocal idolatry, even after the Lord showed them mercy. In verses 10 to 13, we learn about this guy named Jehoash. He takes over after Jehoaz dies. This is the second son of Jehu in command of Samaria, that capital city. And then verse 11, we learn he does evil by walking in the ways of idolatry and he dies. But before he dies, we learn from verse 14 to the end of chapter 13 about the death of the prophet Elisha. All right, now we, we read about his death and just as we would expect from Elisha, knowing Elisha's miraculous ministry, he goes out spectacularly, just as Elijah did in that fiery chariot. In verse 14, we read that just as Elisha is about to die, King Jehoash, or he is sometimes called Joash, he goes up to Elisha just before Elisha dies. uh, And he goes up to him and says in verse 14, through tears, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. All right, now what's going on here, guys, is Joash is in dismay because there's hardly anything left of his army, the Israelite army. He's sort of feeling vulnerable. And I want you to notice, how does he frame Elisha in comparison to himself, who's a king? Notice, once again, we've been saying this all through the book of Kings, who's really in control? It's not the kings of the earth, right? This king himself understands that it's Elisha that's the one that's the father, as it were. He's the one that's in control, as it were. He's the one is an anointed minister of the word. The fathers, those that have God's word, they understand the word. They are guiding more so even than the kings in relation to the Lord. Well, while Israel deserves everything that is coming to them, uh, Joash is pleading, what what do I do here? And so what he does there is Elisha tells Joash to draw a bow. Elisha, the dying prophet, lays his hands on Joash and he tells him to point that bow to the east, which is the same direction as Syria, and send out the bow. All right, and Elisha then says in 17, verse 17, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. So underline those last words, made an end of them. So what he does is, is Joash is all concerned, Elisha prophesies complete victory, total complete victory over Syria. He then tells Joash to take a bundle of arrows and strike the ground with them after this prophecy. And Joash strikes the ground three times. This angers Elisha. And we get the reason why in verse 19. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Okay. If you're anything like me, when you read that passage, you're like, serious, Elisha? I mean, God, like, because you 
three times versus five or six times, then it's not going to be complete. All he needed to do was bang the ground two more times. That's it. Well, of course, we know the Lord is not that fickle, right? There's more to the story that's going on here. If you look more carefully, what the author is communicating to us here is the evident lack of trust that Joash has in Elisha's prophecy. We already have been told that Joash is a wicked dude. And what the author is doing is how showing us how Joash doesn't trust Elisha's prophecy. We have no other reason to believe that God's character is dependent upon someone striking the ground a couple more times. We've been given more evidence that that's not the case. So the number of times striking the ground means to indicate the confidence that Joash has in the prophecy. In other words, it went something like this. Right? So when Elisha says, strike him down, strike the ground, Elisha, or sorry, Joash struck the ground something like this. Versus what Elisha wanted him to do was, like, we're going to do this. That's what it means to indicate. Suspicion, doubt on the prophecy. That's the problem here. Joash sort of humors the dying prophet rather than believing his word. And as a result, we read of some victories, some victories over Syria. But just as Elisha says, we read, it's not total as it was originally prophesied. And we ask again, why? And the answer is because King Joash was not convinced of the prophecy of God's word. Using James's words in the New Testament, he doubted and should not have expected to receive anything. Amazingly, he does receive something. He receives some victories, which is amazing in and of itself since he's a wicked king. And so the call for us this morning, once again, is to trust the word. Trust the words of the prophecy of God's word. And then we get in verses 20 to 21, we get the 16th and final double portion that was given to Elisha by Elijah. So you remember Elijah committed eight miracles, and so Elisha got the double portion, and so we would expect him to have 16 miracles, and Elisha's double portion miracle ministry happens, even the 16th happens after he dies. So a dead man is thrown on the body of Elisha that was being buried, and we read that as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he is raised from the dead. This indicates to us yet again, friends, that unlike Joash that doubted the word, the author's placing this here to show us that those who trust that word by giving themselves to it, by touching it, they have life. They have life. Life comes. But if you reject this, as we saw Joash do, if you doubt this word, then death comes. This story of this man raising from the dead, touching upon the bones of the prophet Elisha is similar to what we read about in Christ. The word of God made flesh as he died and so rose again. So it is for the Israelites. So it is for all of us that believe. You lean into God's word, you find life. You reject it, you doubt it, then you live in death. In verse 23, we read of some more amazing compassion of the Lord that we'll come back to in that second point. But for now, let's continue the descent into the frying pan. So far we've seen the kings of Israel are largely choosing outright idolatry or they're choosing kind of compromised belief and what they're realizing is death, though the Lord continues to work. In chapter 14, we move to the southern tribe of Judah. So we're kind of moving out of the northern tribes, those ten tribes. Now we're moving to the southern tribe of Judah, that other kingdom, capital there, Jerusalem. And we learn in chapter 14 that there's this king Amaziah. He comes to power in verse 3. We read that he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David, his father. By the way, have you noticed this comparison that all the, all the northern tribes, they keep getting compared to the wicked king, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And did you notice all the southern tribes, they get, keep getting compared to David, the one that loved God. It's an interesting observation. Amaziah, though, he comes in. He's a kind of a good king, unlike all of the kings of Israel. And yet Amaziah doesn't get rid of all in the land of all the idolatry. So in other words, what the author is communicating to us is Amaziah is kind of a mixed bag. He's not like the other kings that are just all out bad. He's a little bit of a mixed bag. He does what is right, and yet he doesn't get rid of the idolatry. He doesn't go so far as to get rid of it uh, in the rest of the land. And he does right, we read in verse 5 of chapter 14. He brings the judgment of God upon the servants of the of the people that killed his dad. So remember in the Old Testament, right? Israel has been given the sword of justice, kind of church and state are kind of aligned. 
right? And so he administers the judgment of God upon these people that murdered his dad. But notice what the text goes out of its way to tell you. Notice that it says that he doesn't go so far as to killing the kids of those people that killed his dad. He doesn't bring judgment upon the children of those who killed his father. And this, we learn in verse 6, is done in accordance with the word, and done in accordance with the Bible. There we see a quotation from Deuteronomy 24, 16. So what we see here is unlike Jehu, Amaziah does not go too far. He's restrained by the word. But after this, though, Amaziah, he strikes at the wicked peoples of Edom. He wins the fight there. Once again, things looking good in Judah. Things seem to be going well. Maybe Judah is kind of on the upswing. But then, like so many today, when we get a few strings of victory, we begin to get puffed up. We start to believe the press about ourselves, and we go too far. And that's what Amaziah does. Take a look at verse 8. Amaziah sends some messengers up to Jehoash, who's ruling in Israel at the time. And he says, let's look one another in the face. I love this. Well, actually, I don't love this because it's not good. But basically what's happening here, you've seen like two boxers, you know, when they weigh in and they kind of go nose to nose and they're kind of like this. That's what he's doing. He's challenging him to a fight. So Amaziah, he's feeling strong. He beat the Edomites. He took down the wicked dudes that killed his dad. He's feeling good. He's got the moxie, man. He feels good. His chest is puffed up. Let's go. Let's go to war, man. Come on, me and you. We'll take you down, Israel. The king Jehoash then tells him after receiving this message a little parable that is basically saying, listen, man, if you strike at me, you're going to go down. Don't do this. Amaziah, uh, he tells Amaziah, Jehoash tells Amaziah, verse 10, so instructive, you have indeed struck down Edom. In other words, you did that. I mean, I give you credit for that. Props to you. And your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory. And stay at home. For why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? So Jehoash is sort of like the big brother. When little brother comes up, so let's go to, he, he got a win. He's like, let's go, big brother. And Jehoash is like, you don't want to do this, man. Be content. Stay where you're at. Be content. Friends, pride tends to blind us to the truth. So, like the overconfident little brother, Amaziah attacks Israel, and not only does Amaziah lose, he gets taken captive himself. And Jehoash even goes so far after this. Jehoash Jehoash then goes so far after beating Judah, he goes down into Jerusalem. And in verses 13 and 14, this is just so sad, He then they begin to tear apart the wall that's protecting Jerusalem. And then they go so far as to go inside the temple of the Lord and they start stealing gold and silver and hostages and take them back to Samaria. Civil war. The people that were set aside to be the glory of God, an example, are now fighting each other, stealing from each other, and taking hostages. This is where we're at in the story. God's people not only fighting each other, but again, tearing down their walls, stealing gold and silver, stealing people. And we ask again, how did they get here? How did they get in the skillet? The answer is pride, covetousness, sinful anger, and idolatry. A lack of content. That's how they got here. Sadly, Amaziah has conspired against and killed. We read in verses 23 and, uh, to 29 of chapter 14. Then we get another king. This is up in the northern kingdom. Uh, another kingdom after Jehoash. He goes down and this guy by the name of Jeroboam II comes in. So guys, remember Jeroboam, he's taking the name of the first evil, wicked king. This would be sort of like giving the guy, uh, giving like the name Adolf to a guy that rises to power in Germany. It's terrible. We know this guy's probably going to be a bad dude, and of course he is. He does evil in God's sight, just like his namesake. He does take some some land. We notice, look who pops up into the story, the prophet Jonah. Uh, He does take some land there that's instructed to be taken, and it is there on the heels of this terrible rain that we learn yet again in chapter 14 of the Lord's compassion, which again, we'll come back to in that second point. But that brings us to chapter 15, where another king, and now we're back to the southern kingdom, and his name is Azariah. He comes to the throne in Judah. This is the same guy that's named Uzziah. Some of you know that name. Uzziah, same guy that was ruling at the time of Isaiah's prophetic ministry. 
which is a good point to remind us all that after Elisha dies, you'll notice things are getting worse and you'll notice at the same time the ministry of the prophets begins to multiply. So at the same time we're reading this right here in chapter 15, the same time at this point, the prophet Jonah, Isaiah, Amos, Micah, and Hosea, all of them are right now calling Israel to repentance at the same time that we're reading about. All of them are going around like Isaiah and Hosea saying to Israel, you're acting like a whore. That's the word from the Bible. You're acting like a whore. You're being adulterous. Repent. Come back to the Lord. And at the same time, they're calling for this new covenant that's going to come. All of that is happening at this point of the story. Second Kings 15, we learn that this guy, Azariah or Uzziah, he comes to power in Judah. Verse 3, he does right, but once again, he doesn't take the high places down. All that is signaling to us is that he doesn't go so far as he should be. He's not the Messiah. Because remember, they're tracing the promise. He's not only, this guy, uh, Uzziah is not, or Azaria, he's not only passive in his leadership, he later, Chronicles will teach us, gives himself to idolatry. And so we learn of the judgment of God upon this man. Look at verse 5. So he does what is right, but he also does what is evil. The Lord judges him in verse 5. And the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. About that time, over in the north Uh, In Israel, Zechariah, the fourth and final son of Jehu, begins to reign in Israel. He comes to power. You can see that there in 2 Kings 15.8. He does evil in the sight. By the way, we're about over however many in the northern kingdom. They're all bad kings in the north. Uh, And so this guy, Zechariah, the fourth and final son of Jehu, he comes to power. He does evil in God's sight. And this guy by the name of Shalom strikes him down, kills him. But we learn about the faithfulness and the accuracy of God's word there in verse 12. Look at verse 12 of chapter 15. After Zechariah has come down, we see the fourth son of Jehu. This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu. Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. Friends, God's word is true and it comes true. Trust God's word. That's what we're seeing. God said something would happen to Jehu. It did happen. And so the author is trying to help us see the faithfulness of God, the truthfulness of his word, and the failure of idolatry. But after this, after Zechariah gets taken down and Shalom takes him over, things, guys, go from bad to worse. It gets awful. So awful does it get here in these passages, guys, it's difficult to read. Israel sinks quickly into the toilet Here, Shalom is killed by this guy by the name of Menahim who goes to other cities and reaps absolute destruction on pregnant women. Friends, you should know that the Bible has always seen life in the womb as precious. And here, the killing of children in the womb is meant to be understood as some of the most grotesque forms of evil. Killing the most vulnerable. It's always been the case. Menahim wreaks havoc for 10 years, for a decade. Then he dies. After him, another king comes into power in the northern kingdom. And after him, another king, another evil king comes into power. And then take a look at verse chapter 15, verse 29. There we read that some of God's people now begin to be exiled from the land. Just like Adam and Eve, exiled out. We'll learn more about the exile next week. You will not want to miss next week's passage, chapter 17. But that's the beginning. We'll think about that more next week. That takes us then, friends, to chapter 16, where Ahaz now becomes king. Now we're back into the other southern kingdom. Ahaz comes, becomes king in Judah. And right when you begin to think, well, all right, well, things are terrible in Israel. Maybe things are not as bad in Judah. Right when you begin to think that, we find out, no, they're awful. 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 2, we read, Ahaz does not do what is right in God's eyes as David did. We read in verses 3 to 4, But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on high places and on the hills and under every green tree despicable evil 
now being done in Judah on the same plane as the people that were in the land before the Israelites drove them out. It's as though nothing even happened. And you'll notice, by the way, that this idolatry, this wicked, despicable practices of killing children and these kinds of things, it's spreading everywhere. That's what it is meant by it's happening under every green tree. That's what it's trying to say. It's Now it's just it's going everywhere, which you can understand why the ministry of the prophets is rising up this time. After this, the Lord sends the Syrians up to Jerusalem for judgment. And instead of appealing to the Lord, uh, the king does not appeal to the Lord, nor does he appeal to a prophet. Verse 7, Ahaz appeals to the king of Syria, Assyria, to save them. Look at verse 7. He says in chapter 16, I am your servant and your son. Look at that. Think about a king of Judah, God's people, God's king in the line of David is now calling, saying to the king of Assyria, I'm your son. These wicked people, not appealing to the Lord. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Just think about that. So now you've got not only is Syria coming to attack Judah, now you've got Israel is now on their own coming to attack God's people. This is absolute chaos, absolute darkness. Things are out of control. And again, these, are, these people are supposed to be an example. God delivered them into there and miraculously that they might be set apart for his glory. And now they're just like everybody else. Ahaz goes into the house of the Lord as these uh, Syrians are coming upon his doorstep. He takes some more silver and gold from the temple and he gives it to the Assyrian king as a kind of ransom payment to get rid of the Syrians. And the Assyrian king and his armies drive out the Syrians, keeping Jerusalem safe for now. The chapter then concludes with a testimony of the foolishness of personalized and customizable religion. We read that Ahaz goes to Syria. So he makes his way to Syria because remember, they're kind of pals now. Or at least they've driven that part of it out, and so the Assyrians got that under control. So he goes to Syria. He sees this big altar. No doubt this is a pagan altar. And so Ahaz likes this big pagan altar, and so he emails the specs back to his priest in Jerusalem and says, build one of these. This is syncretism when you sort of religions begin to mix. And so they do. They build this big Uh, altar that's patterned after false gods' altars. They build it right there in the temple complex where God's presence was said to dwell. And in verse 14, they remove the bronze altar. Guys, y'all remember that? This is going way back last September when they were building the temple complex. So now they remove that. He has them remove that bronze altar in front of the temple house itself. Remove that, put this big one up. And then you think, well, maybe... You know, well, that's terrible, maybe, that they kind of, they, they got rid of the bronze altar. What do they do with the bronze altar, Nathan? Well, Ahaz thinks, well, kind of bring it into my own space, and I'll use it for myself. Customizable, personalized religion. Individualized and customizable religion, friends, is not a 21st century American inventory. It's been going on for centuries. In verse 17, it gets worse. He removes other elements of the temple complex. Again, guys, just try to remember how this book began when the temple was being built. Now they're just removing things around to fit whatever they own, to fit whatever they want and to adopt practices of the gods around them. Once again, we see King Ahaz uh, restructuring, redefining what God had revealed to them. And this king is doing it to fit his own preferences. This is an ancient version of creating a god to fit into your own image. After this, Ahaz, king of Judah, dies. Okay, that was a lot. That was a lot. That was a lot. But in short, right, we've got both the northern and the southern kingdoms are riddled in sin and idolatry. Judgment from God is upon them, rightly so. He's administering justice upon their wickedness. They look so much alike, just like the world. They are not holy. They, they are not distinct from the world. They're just like the world. And the sins that got the Israelites to this terrible place, how they got them into the skillet, as it were, could broadly be placed into three categories. One, the sin of pride got them there. Not recognizing. They, they thought too, too highly of themselves. And they did not recognize their own limitations. They ignored God's mercy. They ignored God's word. And they just did as they pleased. Because, again, they believed their own hype. 
The second sin was just straight up idolatry. We saw that in the Asherim, right? The worship of false gods that were the same gods that were around them. And then the third sin that got them there was just customizable religion. When they tried to kind of mix and match a little local religion to kind of fit the true religion of the Lord. Not altogether rejecting anything as such, more so than just trying to mix and match and piece it together as it fits their own desires. And I think most of us, as we think about the application of this, most of us probably are tempted by that first and that third category. Pridefulness combined with customizable religion. The gods that are around us in Washington, D.C. in 2023, the god that are around us is the god of self. Right? We, we, none of us, I'm assuming, are really in the world, but here in Washington, I'm assuming none of you are tempted to follow the gods of the Asherim or the gods of Baal. I'm pretty sure that's true of, of anybody in the world, but in particular you, right? That even in our own city, we're not even really, most of us are not tempted to follow the gods of Islam or the gods of Judaism as such. Maybe some of us are a little tempted to follow the the kind of the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church or Mormonism, maybe. But more often than not, for us, we believe the allure of our city's understanding of personalized freedom and happiness. That's the God that is around us. Get rid of all external authorities. That's freedom. Right? That's how we understand it. Get rid of all external authorities and then embrace our inner self. That's happiness. Get rid of external authorities, embrace the inner self. That's the authority. Get rid of external authority, embrace the inner self. And so we're tempted, therefore, if that's the God that is around us, we're tempted to do then as Ahaz did. Look at other altars we like and kind of reconstruct them and kind of make them our own as it pleases ourselves. Right? Sort of, you know, in a way, kind of take the Lord's Supper and our PJs with Coke and crackers as it pleases us. We do as all these kings did at some level. We're, we're tempted to compromise on a little doctrine or maybe life in that doctrine. Compromise on a little here or there. Because at the end of the day, well, I just don't really like it. Not because it's been studied. Not because you thought about it, worked through it, talked to people about it, prayed about it. You just, I just don't like it. So you begin to adopt other practices. Or because, you know, you don't do it because, you know, that thing would inconvenience my work or my personal schedule. I don't want anyone placing any limitations upon me. I want to be free. So the thinking goes. And friends, I want you to know I understand that temptation. I'm, I'm just as susceptible to that to you as you are. I'm sure that I give in to that more than I ought to. Following Jesus is hard. Right? It's counterculture. He told us it would be. He said, they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. All those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Sound like something you want to sign up for? Right? It's hard. Jesus told us it would be hard. And so the thinking then is to adopt the, this kind of God of self around us is what we think is, we, you know, how about we just cut a few corners and not make it so hard on ourselves and still kind of be Christians, as it were. Conform to the patterns of the world around me a little bit as long as I say I believe the gospel and then I'll get into heaven. And then these other things that are kind of hard, you know, maybe get rid of those. Right? Like giving money to the church or sacrificially caring for the poor evangelizing the lost, regularly meeting up with other Christians to help them follow Jesus, showing up to members' meetings or prayer services, serving in kids' ministry, right? Hard stuff. Not sleeping in regularly, going to church regularly, right? Spending time each day meditating on the Word and prayer, not to mention about all those difficult things that are not very popular these days, like calling abortion, homosexuality, sin, all these kinds of things, right? Why not just kind of keep quiet Kind of about those things. Keep your head down. Try to do the minimum. Not get hit by the world or get hit by the church. That seems to be a pretty attractive option, doesn't it? I mean, who wants to join a church and sign a statement of beliefs and a church covenant and sing hymns? Who does that anymore? Is our context so different than Israel's? Aren't we just as tempted to cut corners and conform to the patterns of the world around us? The more things change, friends, the more they stay the same. As Solomon wrote centuries ago, there's nothing new under the sun. Thus, all the calls, not only in the Old Testament, but all the calls in the New Testament to not conform to worldliness. To avoid adopting the worship that is around you. And it's, it's been a temptation for every civilization since the dawn of time, and it's no different for us. 
It's what led to some confessing Christians to go on crusades to kill people. And it's what led uh, confessing Christians in America to think that Jim Crow laws were okay. They adopted the worship around them. We would be fools to think that this wasn't happening to us at some level. Our ancestors, friends, were blind to things and so can we be. And the book of Kings is here to awaken us to the ways that we can slide oh so subtly into the God that is around us and then slide into hell. By cutting corners on doctrine or life in that doctrine until you reach a point like these Israelites where you barely reflect anything becoming of a Christian. Israel had some, in the, had some about 600 years to get to this point. And while they did not start off good, they certainly didn't start off this bad. Right? It was a slow fade, in other words, to get to these points that we're reading about. Which then begs the question, who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? If we were to fast forward your life based upon your current trajectory, not 600 years like the Israelites, but maybe just six years, where do you think you would find your faith? Where will you be in the next six years based upon your current trajectory? Based on who you are becoming now, your current habits, your current convictions at this stage in your life with Christ and his people, who would you be five, ten years from now? If we were to look back at, you all remember way back again in September in 1 Kings 9, we could have seen in those compromises, you all remember those compromises Solomon made, you know, with all the different wives and going down to the horses in Egypt and getting those. Uh, if we were, to, we were to be able to see from that point, we could have drawn a line from there to here. We would have seen those compromises are going to get us somewhere. What about you? If you invited some three to five of the most God-fearing, Christ-honoring, humble prayer warriors that love Jesus and loved you, if you were to invite them into your life to evaluate your life and doctrine, where do you think they would say you would be in the next five to ten years based upon where you've been for the last six months? Friends, again, these passages are here to warn us. You and I are the egg. And the skillet is that self-defined, privatized, customized, easygoing Christianity that is like all the gods around us. Don't let that false god take hold of you any more than it already has. It'll be a gradual slope. That's the way that the evil one tends to work. We read about uh, him in a fictional, in the fictional demon of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. He wrote from one demon to another demon to reflect, he says, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without mileposts, without signposts. Friends, Satan is a liar and a deceiver. He knows better than to tempt you with cheating on your spouse outright. And so he'll give you just a steady diet of porn to smooth the way there. He knows better than to tempt you to reject the Bible, reject Bible memorization and meditation and prayer. What he'll do is just convince you to sleep a little longer. He knows better than to tempt you to reject evangelism. He'll just convince you to stay quiet with your friend and not ruin the relationship. He knows better than to tempt you to reject the exclusivity of the gospel. He'll just convince you instead of the kindness of your unbelieving friend. He knows better than to have you reject the Bible as the revealed will of God. He'll just convince you that, you know, some of it is. And those some parts happen to fit your preferences and society's preferences. He knows, it's, he knows better than to reject you with the goodness and the authority of Christ. And he'll just keep you instead on the news cycle, seeing all of that disturbing news that is disturbing, and convince you the world's too bad. And slowly he'll get you there. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says, Take care, brothers. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the what? Deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Israel didn't seem to understand that. They weren't on guard. They didn't put on that full armor of the gospel. And eventually they became something that they themselves would have never recognized at the beginning of their entrance into the land. Sin leads you to places you don't want to go. And it'll use the gods that are around you to do it by gradual compromises. 
be warned by the failings and the judgments of God upon Israel. Who are you becoming? And so maybe this week, friend, would be a good week to invite a trusted brother or sister into your life to help take stock of that. Maybe this week, invite one or two or three others. Go out to dinner and say to each other, like, I don't want to... I, want, I don't want to turn out like those guys. I want to love Jesus. I want to make it home to the heavenly Jordan. I want to love him. I want to trust him. I want to cherish him. Will you look at my life? Will you evaluate my life and, and speak the truth humbly to me? And then you can do that for them. And you guys meet up together, I don't know, once a month. and Just sort of take stock of that. I trust that's already happening in your community groups. I pray it is. But maybe you need some more time to just sort of come and grab a few friends and just you guys help each other on so that you don't turn out like these guys. And friend, if you're not following Jesus, this is where you end up under the judgments of God. We want to find ourselves inside of the mercies of Christ. So I'm going to finish there. We've thought about the judgment of God. Let's think briefly about the compassion of God. So we need more than just warnings to get us home to heaven. Warnings, right, have their place. We thought about that. They're significant, to be sure. But warnings alone cannot compel us on towards heaven. We need to be not only warned from something, we need to be compelled, constrained to something better. We need both, right? Again, I can think about those guys that looked at the pictures. I never did. Well, I did chewing tobacco, but I got sick and I was done with it. Thank God. But I can remember the guys that did do it, and they stopped chewing chewing tobacco because of the pictures for about two weeks. Then they would start again. Right? So we need something more than just the warnings. We need something to be compelled, constrained by, that's beautiful, that's right and good and true. Namely, we need to be compelled, constrained by the God of mercy and compassion. And that is also what Kings is doing. As we've come to expect of the Lord throughout this entire narrative that progressively and quickly gets darker and darker, the light of the Lord's mercy and compassion keeps shining. Not only in the Lord's increasing ministry of the prophets as sin increased, that in and of itself is God's grace, but Israel keeps choosing adultery and we read the Lord astoundingly remains faithful and committed and compassionate to the wife that he covenanted with. Amazing. This is the God of the Old Testament. He is not quick on judgment. Again, it has to be provoked or kindled. But he is quick. We see in the Old Testament, he is quick on mercy and compassion. He doesn't have a razor-thin line towards judgment, as he is often accused of. It's exactly the opposite when you slow down and study it. He sits on the edge of his seat in the Old Testament and the New to offer compassion to his ongoing adulterous wife. Take Jehoahaz who was evil, you remember, in the sight of the Lord. And yet we read in 2 Kings 13, 4-5, when he sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore, the Lord gave Israel a savior. A wicked king and a wicked people, and just a quick, just a little, he sees the oppression. He saw that same thing you saw in Syria and in Turkey in the earthquake. He sees that. Just the slightest amount from an evil king. He seeks the Lord and the Lord, boom, sends him a savior just like that. 2 Kings 13, 22 and 23. Hazel, y'all remember Hazel? First time, right? He's met and we see how wicked he's going to be. He shows up. Hazel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them. Why? Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence till now. Amazing. Second Kings fourteen twenty six. The Lord saw that affliction of Israel was very bitter. He saw the bitterness of the affliction. For there was none left, bond or free. There was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Nebosh. He saved them by a wicked king because he was so moved by compassion. There is an unrelenting passion in the Lord that he cannot be quieted by the greatest of sins. He'll even use wicked kings to relieve. Day after exhausting day, Israel commits spiritual adultery. And day after day, the Lord is there to gladly receive her home when she comes home. 
The smallest amount of repentance ushers forth an ocean of compassion from him. And even when there is no repentance, I don't know if y'all caught that, even when there is no repentance, even still, he still will not blot out the name of his adulterous wife, Israel. Why? Why? Because of the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what it said. Because he remembers what he said to her on their wedding day. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Who was it in Genesis 15 when the Lord covenant with Abraham? Who was it that walked between the animals? It was the Lord. He was the one that making the covenant. Because he knew that only he could stay faithful to that covenant. He knew on that day that he covenanted with Abraham. He knew that we are too riddled, that Israel, and that we are too riddled by their sin. He knew what he was getting into with Israel from the beginning. He wasn't surprised by it. No more than he is surprised by our own rampant compromises, by our own spiritual and sometimes even physical adultery. He knew what he was getting to into with you, Christian. He knew it. And he's never regretted it. Not one day. Because he's the one that's faithful. Because he's the one that by nature is compassionate. He is the one that we trust. He is the one, not ourselves. He's the one that we trust to remain faithful to the covenant. And so he is the one that we trust to bring us home to him. We remember that when Christ came into the world, he knew he was laying his life down for who? His enemies. He knew that. He knew that even after we repented and believed, he knew that we would still have swollen egos. He knew that even after we surrendered our life to him, we'd still struggle to not love the world. He knew that we'd be tempted to follow the patterns of the world. And yet he's never regretted getting involved with his people. His compassion continues to lap upon the shores of his people day after day. And so, friends, I know that there are people that have had terrible experiences in the church. Some of, that, some of you, I've talked to you about that. Terrible, inexcusable experiences in the church. Things that God himself believes are inexcusable. And yet Jesus has never given up on the church. Never. Why? Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because of his covenant with David. Because of his covenant with Christ. Therefore, Christian, because of his covenant with you. He's never given up. He's put us, Restoration Church, under the instruction of kings because he wants to warn us on the one hand of a wicked and sinful generation that has always existed. He doesn't want us to follow the course of the world. He wants you and I to see who we are becoming if we compromise. He wants you to see the death that's on the other side of the door of idolatry and compromise. And he wants you to see the love of the Father that you can come home to. In the new covenant of Christ, in the gospel, he's promised to be true in good times and in bad in sickness and in health, in sinfulness and arrogance, in times of idolatry and sensuality. He's promised to love us for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, until death unites us. And so, to you, friend, that have been waiting to surrender your life to Christ because you think maybe your sin is too great for Him, what in the world are you waiting for? My suspicion is, Your sins have not risen to the levels of Israel and Judah. I'm pretty sure you haven't done that. Whatever terrible thing it is, you may have done. And yet there are staggering amounts of compassion in the vaults of the Lord's heart waiting to be lavished upon you. You read that right here. If you would but do what Jehoahaz did and humble yourself and seek the favor of the Lord, knowing he can send a Savior and has. Humble yourself, seek the favor of the Lord. Friend, if he would be so quick to give Israel a savior after centuries of sinfulness, how much more will he give you in Christ, his very own son who laid down his life for your sin? If God would not spare his only son but graciously give him up for us all, how can you not graciously with him trust him for forgiveness and restoration? No, friend, your sin is but a foothill compared to the mountain of the Lord's compassion. Go to him with your sin. Ask him to forgive you and plead the blood of Christ alone. Don't plead your good intentions. Plead the blood of Christ alone to save you and know that you, he will not only will forgive you, but he will get you home to heaven. Trust, friend, the only Savior, the one that was faithful to the covenant to fully and finally save you. Trust his strength. Trust his power. Trust his passion. Trust his cross, his shed blood 
to get you home to heaven. In other words, friend, go to Christ and pound five times. Say, get me home, God. I'm too weak. Don't just bang it three times. And for you, Christian, for you that have been sinning against the Lord with maybe pornography use, for you that have been sinning with ongoing greed, slothfulness, maybe the fear of man, no matter what it is, look again, Christian, at your heavenly husband. There's more mercy in him than there is sin in you. Go again to Christ and ask him to change you, to conform you into his image. Learn from these warnings and be compelled by his compassion so that you may become what he made you to be, what he is making you to be, a beloved and captivating spouse kept for himself. And so church family, the Lord intends to warn us and then compel us in these passages. Tends to warn us from the adopting the worship of the gods around us and compel us to his unrelenting passion, compassion that is seen in Christ. Who are you becoming? Who are we as a church becoming? Where are we going? Where are you going? Sin takes you places you do not want to go. Christ takes you exactly where you need to go. Follow him and may we do it together. Apart from Christ, beloved, in Israel, this is you. And the skillet is idolatry. You get inside of that, that's what you become. But in Christ, you are who he is. Turn to him, trust him, follow him together that we might become who he has made us to be. Lord, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of things and just sleep right through it all. Help us to be warned and help us to be compelled. Warned of what worshiping the gods around us does, compelled by the love of Christ seen in the cross. Thank you, God, that you are a God of judgment, that you are not indifferent towards wrongdoing. And thank you, God, that your mercy is greater than our sin. We love you, and we thank you that you are the one that is faithful to your covenant on our behalf. Help us, we pray in Christ's name.